I want to jump into some teaching today. For the last uh, few weeks, uh, we've been talking about some things specific to life in the church. And we started off talking about the ordinances of the church, and we talked about baptism and communion. Then last time we talked about, or uh, it was that last time we talked about congregational care, the kind of care that we expect to receive uh, simply by being part of a church. And, and, and by the way, if you've missed any of these messages, a couple in September, and now this is our third one here in October, and you consider Faith Community your church home, if you missed any of them, please take the time to, to watch those messages on our website or to listen on our podcast because We've set out over these last few weeks in these teaching to, uh, to clarify some expectations uh, when it comes to our approach uh, to life in the church. So last time we talked about, that's right, last time we talked about some priorities for the coming months. We called that message, These Are the Days. We said that in this time when God seems to be moving in our church and in our community and in our homes and in our circles of influence, that there are some things we must do. And this wasn't an exhaustive list. These are just four things that we're focusing on right now. And we know that these priorities change from time to time. So we said, just as a little bit of review, we said that, first of all, we need to keep the vision clear. Because in a church, we, we start, when we start getting off track for lack of a vision, some ugly things can happen, and they can happen quite quickly. And within months of a vision getting fuzzy, we can watch drifting set in in a church. So as leaders in this church, we've embraced this responsibility to keep the vision clear. We've got to discern that, that holy discontent in us. We've got to talk about that vision with elders and ministry team leaders and influencers and supporters of faith community. We've got to communicate this vision with all of you so that it's shared by everyone in this place until it burns in all of us. Uh, we gotta, and then we've got to just keep delivering on this clarity of vision thing. And we owe it, uh, see, we, we've been given uh, a, a huge responsibility and an incredible opportunity. We owe it to the, our church because we drift without it. We owe it to God. We owe it to his kingdom. We owe it to our broken world. Second thing we said we must do is get everyone involved. And we referenced the story of Nehemiah in the Old Testament. And we said that occasionally we need to be reminded that what we're doing matters. It matters for eternity. Then we said we have to make our gatherings meaningful and memorable. So another way of saying that was basically create great church services. And that what we want in our services is what the church experienced in Acts 2, where it said that everyone felt a sense of awe, as in a holy transcendent, these moments that, that we just have this awareness of the presence of God, and where it's, that is unmistakable. And then we said we have to pace ourselves for the long haul. And the bottom line is we need you. The church needs you. The mission that Jesus has called us to needs you because the church is the hope of the world. Jesus established the church to be here, to be his hands and his feet, to do the work of the gospel. And when the church is functioning, as Jesus called it to function, it is the hope of the world. And then we ask the question, does the message of the church matter? And we said, yes, it matters because we have been given the stewardship of the message of eternal life, and we've been given the stewardship of a message of a better life, an abundant life, a purposeful life, a rich and meaningful life now. And if ever there was a time for the church to be engaged socially, to be engaged in the lives of people, to live out the values of the kingdom of God within these walls when we gather and outside this property and outside this environment when we go, it's now. 
for the sake of seeing our families and friends and coworkers and neighbors thrive, living lives of purpose, living lives with meaning for the sake of the kingdom of God. That's why it matters. So we're taking a few Sundays to clarify some expectations because everybody comes to church with an expectation. And Jesus made it very clear in his life what the point or the purpose of the church would be. And it's interesting when you go from church to church to church that you can wonder sometimes if you're even in the same realm of Christianity when you look at the different things that churches wrap their identity around and the things that churches focus on. So if you've been around church uh, at, for, for any time at all, you know that one of the big challenges uh, for the local church is that in doing the work of the church, it's easy for secondary things to become primary things. So from time to time, we take some Sundays here to address some topics that relate directly to the mission of the church, and even more specifically, how we're pursuing our mission, just to make sure that we stay on track, to make sure the primary things here remain the primary things and that we don't drift off course. So I want to kind of lead off in some fresh content this morning and ask you this. Do you have some family members who are far from God? Do you have family members who have drifted away from the church? Do you have some family members who may not even be that far from a relationship with God, but they aren't quite there yet? Do you have some family members that your heart is burdened for? How about friends, coworkers? Is there anyone in your life that lives right here in our area, and you've invited them to come to church with you, and you've tried to tell them about your experience here, and when you talk with them about a relationship with Jesus, they just don't quite get it yet. And you have a burden for them to get plugged in with some people that you do life with and you do church with and that you serve with and that you worship with because you know that's the missing piece for them. So here's the thing. It's not just the leadership's responsibility to figure out how to reach those people that you care deeply about who don't see themselves as church people, who aren't sure that what they believe about the whole thing, right? Who think that there might be something off with you because you do believe it. It's, it's not all on the church's leadership team to sit down at a table for a few hours and come up with a strategy to reach those people. You're a part of this. Like, we are all in this together. We started this church over 25 years ago with a set of 19 core values. And a few years into it, we realized that's a long list. We had a hard time memorizing that list, so we narrowed it down to 12, and then we combined a couple. So since we've been talking about some things these last two weeks that are related to church and church practices, and specifically how we're approaching these things, and I didn't set out to make this a series, but it has become kind of a multi-part conversation about some related topics, but since we're talking about our shared stewardship of the church and of the message of the gospel, of eternal life with God and a rich and meaningful life now in the kingdom of Jesus. We're going to continue this conversation today and for a couple more weeks. So today, though, I want to talk through our core values. And we were actually very intentional when we wrote out our core values that to put them in no particular order because we didn't want to rank them in order of importance. Uh, but for the sake of keeping track this morning, uh, core value number one is the Bible is our standard. The Bible is God's primary means by which he's chosen to reveal himself to speak to us. And one of the first things, for example, that we see in the opening pages of Genesis in chapter 1, we read no less than 10 times that God said, God said that the God of the Bible is a God who speaks, and he continues to be a God who speaks. 
And so the reason that we need revelation is that God is creator and we are created. The distance then between us and God is great. And unless God practiced self-disclosure, speaking to us, revealing himself to us, who he is, what he's done through Jesus, then we wouldn't know. We'd be left with speculation. And speculation is the human effort to guess what God is like or to guess what God wants us to believe or how God wants us to behave. Revelation is far more reliable and far more helpful than speculation because revelation isn't us guessing, it's God speaking. So with God speaking, telling us who he is, he tells us what he desires. He tells us how to have a relationship with him and he speaks to us and then he invites us in prayer to speak to him. Now, when we say the Bible, what we're talking about is this collection of books that God has divinely inspired. And again, all Scripture is breathed out by God or inspired by God. But, you're like, oh, where is he going now? We acknowledge that not all Scripture is equally applicable and I know that sounds like heresy, and this isn't going to give me much protection from some of you, but um, I know I love having, I've engaged in these conversations with some of you, and it's a lot of fun. Here's what I mean by this. First of all, did you know there was a church? The church thrived and exploded in growth before there was a Bible. Did you know that? Did, you didn't know that, did you? For the first 300 years, there was, there was no Bible, but the church was everywhere. Just thought I'd throw that out there. Helps sometimes to study our, our own story, our church history. For instance, here's what I mean when I say that not all Scripture is equally applicable. Galatians 6.2, we looked at this verse a few weeks ago, and we were talking about caring for one another, where the Apostle Paul says, carry one another's burdens, that is, carry one another's burdens, is much more applicable than, for example, Leviticus chapter 20, verse 9, where it says, quote, anyone who dishonors father or mother must be put to death. Such a person is guilty of a capital offense. Aren't you glad? Okay, oh, you got it. You're with me. Thank you. Okay, Scripture is equally inspired but not equally applicable. In other words, we need to understand context and take it into consideration. Who was writing? Who is the original intended audience? A lot of the Old Testament was written to ancient Israel, not to us. It's important, but it's not equally applicable. The teaching and then the recalibration that came as a result of the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century led to the doctrine of sola scriptura. Sola scriptura meaning scripture is our only authority. Scripture alone is our authority. At Faith Community, we believe this. That's true where the scripture clearly speaks to us, to the church, to those of us who are living under the new covenant that we talked about a few weeks ago. But where the scripture doesn't speak, there is freedom. In other words, we have to be aware of the church's tendency, church people, okay, our own tendency. This has been true since a first century church. It was true in Acts 15, that early. We have a tendency to mix and match old covenant and new covenant. Like we find ourselves defaulting to reaching back into old covenant ideas, teachings, narratives to support some ideas that actually, listen, go against the vision of Jesus that he gave for this new way to be human in the kingdom of God. It's like we still like to feast every once in a while on old covenant leftovers. 
So like the idea of elevating the Ten Commandments, they're the big ones, right? You're, you're hesitant to respond. I understand. It is a trick question. We think they're the big ones. We elevate the Ten Commandments over the Sermon on the Mount. Or the idea of thinking that the pastor gets the same treatment as Old Covenant prophets. He doesn't. Or thinking that God judges nations at all. The idea that God judges nations is an Old Covenant idea. The idea that He brings natural disasters as a judgment on a people. Old idea. Or here's one. Taking advice. Taking dating advice from a guy who never dated but had like hundreds of wives. And you're like, who? It's in there. <laughs> Here's a specific example. Is one of my, and I have, you know, those of you who know me know, I have a couple of pet peeves. Thank you for not laughing too bad there. But I, here's one of my favorite. Here's, this is one of my pet peeves, like the idea of like taking Scripture, applying it to us when it wasn't, it's not applicable to us. Here's one of my favorites, and I hope um, I, I have it. didn't go to the parking lot to check your bumper stickers, but here's one of my favorites. Jeremiah 29, verse 11. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. We love that one. Don't we love that one? Great verse. Makes for great Facebook memes. Makes for good bumper stickers. Makes for good wall hangings, refrigerator, refrigerator magnets. Um, and, 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 and every kind of like, you like that once on Facebook. Now all these Facebook marketers are like, are like pushing stuff to you with Jeremiah 29, 11 all over it. Because it feels great, right? That we can confidently step into the unknown, into the next chapter, assured of prosperity and divine protection. But when it says... I know the plans I have for you. Who is the you? This is the danger of our numbered verses system. We take little tiny pieces out and think, there, this is, this is it. That's a man-made construct. And I'm thankful for it because it helps us find stuff. But let's read the whole passage. The whole passage says, this is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you'll call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord. I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. So if Jeremiah 29, 11 sits right in the middle of that, if that is intended for us, then yes, we will be protected and prosper, but we have to wait for the 70 years of exile to end first. And that's in Babylon, by the way, so good luck finding Babylon on your map. I know I'm being a little bit nitpicky and a little facetious here, but... These words weren't written to us. They were written to a, a bunch of Jews living in exile in Babylon in the 6th century B.C. And yes, we can learn something about the character of God. We can benefit from the spirit of some passages like these. But for us to claim as ours promises made to someone else sets us up for a false hope. And false hope ultimately ends in disappointment. And unresolved disappointment ultimately ends in disappointment and even disillusionment with God. That's why this matters. So, it's confusing and misleading and even dangerous to mix and match uh, and blend Old Testament concepts 
with a vision and teaching of the new covenant. So you can't put old and new in a blender and serve it as a single dish, okay? In order to understand and apply the scripture uh, properly, we have to understand that the Bible is organized around several covenants between God and a variety of people and a variety of different people groups at different times. So we need to be really careful not to apply to ourselves what was intended for someone else. Because when we do that, in the past when we've done that, the church has justified all kinds of terrible behavior. Have you, are you familiar with the concept of the Crusades? Old Testament thinking. We prioritize things that shouldn't be prioritized. We miss what Jesus invited us to experience as we do life in his kingdom. So, also, that was a lot. I'm not going to spend this much time on all of these, but... All Scripture is equally inspired, but not equally applicable. Where the Scripture clearly speaks to us, to the church, to those of us living under the new covenant, we will apply it with the assistance of the Holy Spirit. But where the Scripture doesn't speak, there is freedom. So I have a lot more to say about that, and I may, maybe we'll take a Sunday to talk about that in the future. Core value number two in no particular order. Spiritual gifts are our ministry tools. Spiritual gifts are our ministry tools. So Part of becoming a maturing believer is discovering and exercising our spiritual gifts, using them to benefit one another. Let me give you a brief definition. I like this definition of a spiritual gift uh, as one of many, but I like this one. Spiritual gifts are abilities distributed to every believer by the Holy Spirit and empowered by the Holy Spirit for the common good of the body of Christ. See, God has gifted you whether you think he has or hasn't. God has gifted you. Not for your sake. God has gifted you for my sake. God has not gifted me for my sake. He's gifted me for your sake. The reason that we've been given spiritual gifts is to serve one another, to serve other believers specifically. It's through the gifts that God allows his church to function and thrive. The Apostle Paul teaches about spiritual gifts in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, and then the Apostle Peter makes reference to some gifts in 1 Peter 4. And you may not have thought about it this way, but um, when you walked in this morning, this whole scenario of spiritual gifts was already happening. Sometime yesterday, a crew of people rolled in here to prepare for this service by cleaning the building, emptying the trash and vacuuming and mopping floors and cleaning restrooms. On any given week, there's a pretty good chance that someone's come in between Sundays to to attend to some kind of a maintenance task. Someone has created all the multimedia content and planned the music and prepared the band and the singers. Weeks ago, someone thought about what your kids would experience this morning. They made curriculum choices, planned out today's content weeks ago. They prepared video teaching content, printed handouts, made sure that there were people scheduled to fill every slot in our kids' ministries. There are 12 people scheduled uh, just today to minister to your kids and grandkids from infants all the way to 12 years old today. You have been the benefactor today of those people with a gift of service, gift of ministry, gift of hospitality, people with administration gifts, people with leadership gifts, people with exhortation and teaching gifts. Today, you've, you've already been ministered to in a variety of ways by people who you will not even see, may not know, but they have discovered and are discovering their gifts and are made, have made their gifts available to this church, to you. It's one of the reasons you enjoy coming here, belonging here, participating here. It's why you, uh, because a variety of people are using their gifts and God is ministering to you through those people. 
wherever there's an orchestrated group of people coming together to do something for God's work, it is an example of men and women and teenagers making their gifts available, ministering the grace and goodness and love of God through them to other people. That's what spiritual gifts are all about. You know what the result of all this is? If you're a believer, <laughs> you're a follower of Jesus, you are important to the kingdom of God. If you're a believer, your church doesn't function as it should without you. Nobody's a nobody, and everybody's a somebody. There are no nobodies in the kingdom of God. The problem is, if we sit back and selfishly hog our gift, refuse to make it available to the body of Christ, two parties miss out. You miss out on being used by God, and somebody who needs the goodness and grace of God, as shown by your gift, misses out. Somebody misses out. And until we're willing to let God use our spiritual gifts to minister to other people, there's always going to be something missing. Sometimes I think these are the people who come to the pastor and say, well, uh, you know, I just don't get anything out of the sermons. I don't get anything out of the music. I don't get anything out of the small groups. I don't get anything out of this experience. And I want to say, wait, 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 listen to what you're saying. Do you think for a minute that the primary reason God brought you here with this group of other believers is to get something? Like God has gifted each of us to give something. That's how church functions. And sometimes we get bent all out of shape because we get things flipped upside down and we think, I came to get and I'm not getting. No, God brought each of us here to give. And spiritual gifts come from the Spirit of God. So the question is, do you know your gifts? Do you know your gifting? If, if not, you might just need to, I would say, commit to figuring that out. Uh, we actually have some tools to help you with that. They aren't foolproof. It's not like you pass, fail, test, or whatever. It is 100% accurate, but it's a really good tool, resource. We call it a spiritual gifts assessment, and I put a few out on the information station out there by the door as you leave today. Grab one if you want, and it's all pretty self-explanatory and intuitive. You can figure it out. Core value number three says every member is a minister and every member is equipped for service. And, and that was a little confusing because we don't talk a lot about membership here, so you don't even know, am I a member? I don't know. We might think you're a member. If you think, do you think you're a member? Then, okay, you're a member. That's how we... Anyway, every member is a minister. If you're here and a part of us, you're a member for, for, this, for this conversation. Every member is a minister and every member is equipped for service. And then I, I lump this one together, number four, servanthood is our operating style. So a few weeks ago in my teaching about congregational care, I mentioned this idea of span of care, right? Span of care is basically the idea that any average person can really only care for a limited number of other human beings. So if you're, like, you're going to have relationships be the basis of your caring. And that's why it's important that everybody in the congregation is caring for one another, that every member of the church is ministering to and serving one another. And we realize that it's on the leadership to make sure this is happening, to keep our, uh, kind of our, our finger on the pulse, to make sure our members are, are equipped to serve one another. And we're always trying to get better at this. It's really what our care team is all about. We talked about it a few weeks ago. 2 Timothy 2, the Apostle Paul said, he said, you've heard me teach things that have been confirmed by many reliable witnesses. Now, teach these truths to other trustworthy people who will be able to pass them on to others. So there's something that we're, this is something we're continuing to work on and we're being, being, being very intentional about it uh, right now. Core value number five, our definition of success is New Testament community. We've said that in the church, the simple principle that governs our interactions is that we are to Treat each other in the church the way God has treated each of us in Christ. That's the standard. So we've said for years, we started saying this years ago, that kind of like our house rules spell out the word faces. Forgive, 
accept, care, encourage, submit. Forgive one another, accept one another, care for one another, encourage one another, submit to one another. It's in Ephesians 4, Romans 15, Galatians 6, Hebrews 3, Ephesians 5. And here's here's, here's why this matters. Because the way that we treat each other is a reflection of how we think about God. Like, our treatment of each other is a reflection of our reverence and respect for Christ. There are all these one another's in the New Testament. Things like love one another, serve one another, accept one another, admonish one another, forgive one another, submit to one another. And when all of these things are happening in the church, when those things characterize our relationships, then we've begun to experience what I call New Testament community. That's our end game because that's where life change happens. And this is our definition of success. I encourage you, you want to just kind of dig into this a little bit. Just get your Bible app and do a word search on one another and uh, see where that takes you. Core value number six, small groups function as basic church. And number seven, life change happens best in small groups. I know, I'm a broken record. 25 plus years, small groups, small groups, small groups, small groups. Did you know that we do small groups every Sunday morning? Every week, the preschoolers and jammers and the elementary kids in surge gather at some point in their morning in small groups. Their leaders engage with them in discussion about the morning's teaching, about their life. They ask them questions. They pray together. Every time our teenagers are together in FCF Youth in the queue on Sunday mornings, like they are this morning, they are engaging as a small group. Right now, on a typical week, our church is gathering in eight different small groups uh, with about 110 adults and children in small groups every week. I'm pretty pleased with that. I'm, I'm encouraged by that. Um, for those of you who are committed to small groups, I hope you find that encouraging too, to know that this is something that is happening church-wide, uh, and it's in a healthier place than it's been in a long time. And we're going to keep emphasizing the importance of small groups because our big, hairy, audacious goal for small groups is for everyone who attends on Sunday morning to be connected with one another, with other followers of Jesus in a small group of some kind. We think it would be awesome if we had more people in small groups than we have on Sunday morning. That would be amazing. Because when it comes to interacting with Scripture, interacting with truth, interacting with real life, interacting with one another, staying on track as a disciple of Jesus, avoiding the drift, finding the support and encouragement and biblical community that we need, that we are created for, especially when the wheels come off, we believe that circles are better than rows. So I talk about this all the time, so I'm just going to move on. Number eight, core value number eight, children and youth participate fully in church life. Uh, We've been given an incredible opportunity and a serious responsibility to pass down to the next generation the truths and the foundations of our faith that have transformed and so radically changed and altered our lives. It's, it's a responsibility. It's a stewardship that all of us, those of us who have children, those of us who don't, those of us who aren't married yet, those of us whose children have grown up and gone on, it's a responsibility that all of us need to think through uh, from time to time. And actually, that's all I'm going to say about that right now because we're going to revisit this topic in a couple weeks' time. We're going to spend our whole morning uh, exploring just this core value and what that looks like in the life of our church. But what an awesome opportunity. What a great responsibility we've been given. It's, I mean, it's why in a few minutes when the, we start the music and the kids come back and it's just chaos in here for about a minute and a half, I love it. I just love it. I hope you embrace it. When you scowl at a kid, I take note of that. I got some stuff I talk to God about. And uh, that's what we want. We want, we embrace the chaos of, our, of children in our, in our church. 
It's a responsibility. We have such a huge responsibility to them. We all need to take it seriously. Core value number nine, FCF should be culturally relevant while remaining biblically based. So we talked about the biblically based thing. So the culturally relevant, what do we mean by that? I think it's important that we understand like demographics of our community, things like age and marital status and income and education and occupation, those kinds of things. But I think it's even more important to understand the, the culture of our community. Like data says one thing, culture is something a little more uh, uh, ambiguous, I guess. By culture, I really mean like lifestyle and the mindset of people who live in our community. I'm talking about people's values, their interests, their hurts, their fears, like, what are their interests? What do they value? What are their priorities? Where do they hurt? What do they do for entertainment? What kind of music do they like? The more we know about them, the easier it will be to reach them. So there are a couple major areas that come to mind uh, when I, we start to talk about this in leadership circles, about being relevant and, and, and being where people can identify and relate. And, and they are, uh, let me just start with this. I'm going to start with environment. Specifically, this environment that we gather in, this building, like the spaces inside this building. Um, this is just newsflash, and if you're, you're watching online, this is not your typical New England church building. And that's on purpose. Like, we are not getting a plaque with, from the Historic Society or whatever. That, like, no, we're not getting that. It's just not going to happen. Um, and it's not because, oh, well, it's nice. This is all we could afford and all we really could do. No, that, this, we weren't looking for a white steeple building with stained glass and wooden pews. We weren't looking for that, whatever, 18 years ago. This is pretty much exactly the kind of environment we set out to create. And, and inside the building, we're really careful about some things like religious symbolism. Like sometimes we have a cross that sits up here, usually on this side. Sometimes it sits there. Uh, sometimes it sits in the back of the room back there. Sometimes it's not in the room at all. Uh, but we don't think we should display anything that requires much explanation for people who are coming to church for the first time. Because that insider stuff makes the outsider feel like they don't belong here. Another cultural factor is music, because music has a way of defining who we are as a church, and even in our history as a nation, it's incredibly influential. It can determine the kind of people that we attract, the kind of people we keep, the kind of people we lose. And I know it sounds a little overstated, but the music that we play has a potential to position us as a place where unchurched people feel comfortable. And I don't know how comfortable they are with the moisture that tends to build up right here during the music and then often makes its way down their face because that's often the response. Uh, so there's a point where we're like, we're okay with you being uncomfortable as well. But I, here's the thing. As much as we care about you, okay, your faith community, you're, you're in. We care about you and we love you. You know we do, right? We really care about unchurched people. We care about your friends and family and coworkers who aren't here yet who don't know what it is to have a relationship with their creator. So when you ask a question, why don't we do a certain song? Or you remind me of how much you love those 19th century hymns. Let's just remember, this experience isn't about us. I think we understand that no particular style of music is sacred. Okay? What makes a song sacred is its message. For thousands of years, the Holy Spirit has used all kinds of different kinds of music to bring glory to God. It takes all kinds of churches using all kinds of styles of music to reach all kinds of people, even in a small town like Ellsworth, Maine. No one style is going to reach everybody. So now, admittedly, I get a kick out of people 
who yearned for the old hymns. So think about this. We invite 21st century Americans to come sit on 17th century benches we call pews, to sing 18th century songs that we call hymns, to listen to a medieval instrument that we call an organ, and wonder why people think church is irrelevant. (laughs) Even the idea of preaching. Where else do people regularly gather, sit in rows, stare at a person talking for 40 minutes? Let's talk about that. I usually just call it teaching because I don't know the difference. I don't consider myself a preacher and I don't really know the difference between preaching and teaching. So they never taught me that in seminary. But, so I just call it teaching. Maybe it lowers the expectation. I don't know. But here's the thing that we believe about teaching in our church. That you really can't communicate effectively with people until you find something you have in common with them. So like with the unchurched who come through these doors, maybe your invitation... You don't establish common ground by saying, let's open our Bible to Isaiah chapter 14 as we continue our study of this wonderful prophecy. This isn't the place for that. There's a place for that. Sunday morning isn't the place for that for us. The ground, here, this is going to blow your mind. The ground we have in common with unbelievers is not the Bible. It's our common needs, our common hurts, our common interests as human beings. And so I honestly don't think God cares whether we teach the Bible verse by verse or topic by topic. Jesus kind of did both. I don't think he cares whether we start with the text and move to applying it to felt needs or we start with felt needs and move to the text. I don't think God is that worked up about that. And you're like, is this even a thing? Oh, yeah, it's a thing that people will debate over. And I know preaching to felt needs is scorned and criticized in some circles as like a cheapening of the gospel and like selling out to consumerism. And again, I would just go back to the example of Jesus. Here's the thing. Building a message around people's felt needs. Like Jesus didn't, Jesus didn't, create, didn't perform miracles and heal people as a marketing tool. That wasn't his, his intention. And God chooses to reveal himself to us according to our needs. Like even the names of God in the Old Testament are revelations of how God meets our felt needs. So if we're serious about doing ministry and reaching our community and seeing them come to Christ and follow Him, we've got to remain faithful to the unchanging Word of God and on the other hand, we've got to minister in an ever-changing world. And I don't believe they're mutually exclusive. I think the way to do this is to follow Jesus' example of ministering to people. John says that he made his dwelling among us. He lived among us. He walked among people, spoke their language, observed their customs, attended their parties. We'd heard that last week. Used their current events. He always started where people were. Like Jesus was contemporary without compromising any truth. So the Bible has to remain the foundation of everything that we teach and our church should reflect certain cultural norms. So cultural relevance is determined both on a global, national, and local level. Um, Let's see, core value number 10. Excellence honors God and inspires people. All kinds of examples of this, especially in the Old Testament. Again, that's where we we can take the spirit of something we're reading and realize this is something that God values. So first of all, we have to define excellence. Excellence is not perfection. Aren't you glad? Excellence is bringing the best we have to offer. 
my best is going to be different from your best, but God hasn't called me to offer your best. This should affect everything we do. I mean, from cleaning and maintaining the building and first impressions and the quality of our music and the quality of the programming we're offering for our kids and teens and, and the way that we present and teach in this room and with your kids and the teenagers and all that, because nothing is neutral in church. Everything is either positive or negative. And every Sunday, we never know who's going to walk through these doors like for the first time, first time they've ever encountered God in this kind of a setting. And every Sunday, people come with brand new challenges, new questions, new doubts, new hurts, new uncertainty. And when we do things right with excellence and pay attention to the details, we can remove some of the distractions and focus on ministering to people where they are. It's been commonly accepted that you can't, just about every area of life, that you can't like you got to choose between quantity and quality, and that's been applied to church as well. But that simply isn't true. Like, quality and quantity are not in opposition to each other. They aren't exclusive. So you don't have to choose between the two. This church should want both. We want excellence, and we want a bunch of people here. We want to have as many services as we have to have to get everybody in, and we want to do it with excellence. Like, here's an example. When you go fishing, do you want quantity or quality? You want both. Exactly. You want both. I got 100 fish. They're all this big. Nobody brags about that, you know? So you want to catch the biggest fish you can, and you want to catch as many fish as you can. This church should want to reach as many people for Christ as possible and and to help them become as spiritually mature as possible. And I think something that a lot of churches have, uh, I think, chosen to ignore, because it's easier, is the idea that quality actually produces quantity. A church full of genuinely changed people attracts other people. People who are attracted to churches with quality music and quality preaching and teaching and quality ministry and quality authentic fellowship, like quality attracts quantity. Core value number 11, lost people matter to God. And I know this sounds a little offensive, first of all. You're like, I don't know about all this, like calling them lost people. That sounds offensive. Listen, we started off asking a question. Like these are your family members, your friends, your coworkers, your neighbors that we're talking about. And here's why we're okay using this language. Because we know we've been found. We didn't stumble across something and find something. We've been found. We were lost and now we're found. Lost people matter to God. This drives, it should drive everything that we do on Sundays. If people are going to check out church, they're going to do it on Sunday morning. That's just the reality. It's why we've designed our building the way we have. Um, like, so it's, it's not what an unchurched person might expect if they finally come to church at someone's invitation and all they've ever experienced about church is a wedding or two and a couple funerals. I love it when we have groups come in here from our community. A few years ago, we hosted a Chamber of Commerce event here, and I was helping one of the speakers get her wireless mic on, and she says, now, she was so confused, what kind of, what kind of building is this? And I said, well, it's a, it's a church. And she said, what kind of church? And I wasn't sure how to respond to that. And I'd, I love trying, but I never know what to say. It's the reason we use the terminology we do. It's why we put 
things like scripture on the screen. It's why we play the style of music that we do. It's why that's changed over the years. It's why we handle corporate prayer times with sensitivity in this setting. Like some churches have a specific target audience in mind for their Sunday morning services. Like when we started this church, other church people would ask, so who's your, who's your target? Like who's your target audience? And, and we certainly talked a lot about this in the beginning, uh, like in, amongst our leadership circles. But then we basically decided to, to, uh, to make it difficult on ourselves by having a target audience of everybody. From skeptic to saint, like the whole spectrum. Like, in fact, we wanted to do, here's the thing. If we wanted to do church exclusively for church people, we could make things a lot easier on ourselves. But Jesus' primary mission, in his own words, was to seek and to save the lost, Luke 19. And every person you meet, every person you work with, every person you do business with, every person in your family, in your circle of friends, matters because they matter to God. And they matter to God because every one of them is someone created in the image of God and someone Jesus died for. That's why lost people matter to God. Because they carry in them the image of the Creator and Jesus died for them. We don't ever want to lose sight of that. I love the stories of the lost sheep and the lost coin and the lost son in Luke 15 where the shepherd left the sheep in his fold to go looking for the one that was lost. And the woman didn't give up her search till she found her lost coin. And the father watched every day out on the horizon for his lost son. And then he throws a party when he comes home. We, have, we must never lose sight of this truth that lost people matter to God. Let's run everything through this filter. You want to know the value of the people in your life, the people in our community, the people who come through the doors of this building? Look at the cross because lost people matter to God. Thank you for your attention this morning. Uh, Thanks for being on this journey with us as we keep pursuing um, this calling, this mission to make disciples, to lead people, and love people into growing relationship with Jesus. Let's sing together.